it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be our second episode on the economic aspects of this parallel between the time of the Reformation and modern times. This one specifically will be on things like banking practices and banking and finance in general and war and consolidation of the state, these types of things and how that took place and what that looked like historically and what the parallels are for those things today. So the first thing is that new banking practices and new dynasties came in and helped to finance and fund war and state consolidation in the Middle Ages through the Renaissance and coming into the time period of the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War. A lot of the money that was flowing into the state and funding wars was coming out of these new concepts and these new classes, these new bankers that were coming up. So the Medici are one that I have mentioned multiple times, and they found ways of getting around the pesky rules against interest and found ways of becoming a banking dynasty and making a lot of money that way. They did loan to the nobility. They loaned to city-states themselves, and they were bankers to many of these more institutional players, so to say. War as a whole became a lot more large-scale as the ability to fund it at a large scale became an option. And a lot of that had to do with these new uh, banking practices. One of the really interesting things, you may remember an interview I did with the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, and we talked a little bit about this, about the use of Arabic numerals and how these created new abilities with money and this wasn't something that they could have done or could do very easily, at least, prior to the use of this new numerical system, the invention of the zero, or at least the invention of it from the perspective of Western Europe and these areas and peoples that we're talking about here. This definitely improved the ability of bankers to bank, as well as getting around the rules against Having interest charged on loans and on money in general, that really helped having a merchant class rise up and this new entrepreneurial class come up with a lot more wealth and using that wealth to finance other ventures to become basically venture capitalists and start this process of gaining wealth and influencing. Of course, if you're doing that, you've got to influence the local authorities because you are now building up all of this wealth. You're getting a lot of power in the economy. You are controlling large sections of the economy of a local area, and you will get shut down. 
down if you infringe on the monopoly of the state. That was true then. That is true now. Look at the Silk Road, for example, and Ross Ulbricht. That didn't really work out so well. And so that happened at this period in time, too. So what happened is that these merchants, the Medici is the example I'm using right now, they started to influence the local politicians and influence the state of the day. The Medici ended up becoming officials. They essentially became nobility. Some of them ended up being popes. And so they definitely rose through the ranks, both in the state and in the church. And these were the two main institutions of the day. After the Medici, you had the Fugger family come up and they became basically the bankers to the emperor. And they backed the Habsburg Empire, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Austria. And the Fuggers became one of the most wealthy families around. They are said by some to have kind of taken over the role that the Medici played prior to them throughout the Renaissance time period. And coming into more of the Reformation time period, the Fuggers were kind of filling this role. And they specifically specialized in financing the state. They specialized in financing war in particular with the state. And so states and monarchs of this time and emperors, they had limited resources. It's not like they were using fiat money that was completely controlled by a monopoly of the state where they could basically tax and print as much as they felt they wanted or needed and had, in a sense an unlimited budget. That didn't exist at this time. There was no such thing as the military-industrial complex. No, what you had was these regional rulers, these kings, these monarchs, these emperors that had a relatively small area that they controlled. They had limited control over that area and very limited control over the money that they had access to and collecting taxes and generating new funds. They were much more limited than we are today. And so they needed to get that money somewhere. War is very expensive. It always has been. That was one of the limiters of war before this time period was that the local lords and and the dukes and the kings, they couldn't really generate a whole lot of money to go to war. And so wars were much smaller. They generally would have to go around and get money voluntarily from their people or not voluntarily. But if you push that too much, that doesn't go so well for you. Usually you start a rebellion. And so they were limited in this aspect as far as how much war they could necessarily carry out because they didn't have the funds in an unlimited manner or anything close to it. For an example, if you look at the Italian city-states and the wars that they were fighting among each other in roughly the Renaissance time period and slightly prior and slightly after that, these city-states were extremely wealthy. Think of places like Venice and Florence around the time of the Reformation. A lot of wealth. This was at the height of the Medici reign and their influence. Now, because of this, the wars that were funded between these different city-states were oftentimes at the same scale as the wars that were fought, for example, between France and England. And so if you think about that, this tiny Italian city-state on this tiny Italian peninsula, they were carrying on war at the same scale of the gigantic and some of the most powerful countries around of France and England. That's pretty crazy. But that's because they had access to the funds. They could generate the money. They had the wealth. A lot of that had to do with the economy and the type of economy that they had and the rise of this merchant class and a merchant and entrepreneurial type economy that was spurred and the wealth that was generated out of this. This was 
a big factor in the wars that could be raged because of the wealth that they had. And that was something, again, that limited other places until you get into this time period post-Medici, let's say, and you have bankers rise up, such as the Fuggers. One of the Fuggers, Jacob Fugger, is thought to be the wealthiest man to have ever lived in the entire world. And so that's you know quite a lot of wealth. I'm sure that's adjusted for inflation and such. But that's a pretty big deal. And the way they got so rich was financing war. This should remind you of another example that I've used in uh, long ago episodes with the Rothschilds and the story of how the Rothschilds got their banking dynasty fully established and really capitalized on their position was through the ordeal of the Napoleonic Wars and the Battle of Waterloo and that whole story. I won't repeat that story here, but I've done that and I've done a special episode on the Rothschilds for Patreon members. So if you're a Patreon member and you have not heard that episode, go back and listen to the one specifically on the Rothschilds and I get into that whole backstory and how that plays out and all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested, you can seek that. But the point is that the Fuggers were able to fund this war, and so you started to get some much more large-scale wars going on. And it was due to these new banking practices, this new type of economy, this new merchant class, this entrepreneurial spirit that started up generating a lot more wealth, these families, these dynasties that started to come up and were basically the money behind the throne and behind the wars. This is what fueled what we get into when you get into the 30 years war and this time period we're talking about just after or kind of the culmination of the reformation this is what enabled all of that all of this conflict from a military perspective now when you look at more modern times we have some similar innovations that have come about that have really made a huge difference in the way that states can carry out warfare. You have something that's not necessarily the merchant class, but you have these things called foundations. Foundations have been around for a long time, but if you look at the history, for example, of the Rockefeller Foundation or the Gates Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation, these foundations have been able to fund a lot of things through the state and for the benefit of the state that is actually truly for the benefit of themselves. If you look at right now, the World Health Organization, the second biggest donor to the World Health Organization that keeps it running and gives it all of its money is the Gates Foundation, second only to the United States government. So that's kind of a pretty big deal. I've done episodes on the Rockefeller Foundation, or at least spoken of this aspect in other episodes where they have this business model of promoting things abroad, such as the use of oil and oil-based products, fertilizers, chemicals, machinery, all this kind of stuff. A lot of times that is started through warfare, where other Western countries come in, they throw out the local dictator that is not friendly to the Western powers, they put in a friendly one, they start getting their economy and their industrial system up to par with the rest of the world, so to say. That's what you'd say. And in a way, that is true and that is beneficial. But they do it in such a way that they become heavily reliant on oil and petroleum products. And in doing so, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, Standard Oil, and the subsidiary companies that that broke up into when they broke up the so-called monopoly that Standard Oil had, all of those greatly benefited and all of that flows back into the Rockefeller dynasty, which is very similar to the Medici dynasty and the Fugger dynasty and all of these other dynasties. It's a similar model here that 
enables a lot of conquest, so to say. And it's not necessarily that the Western world is taking over the rest of the world through warfare, although that does come into play. A lot of that nowadays is more economic in nature, and there are takeovers that are much more economic in nature that I have also talked about in other episodes. But a lot of this is through this new means and organization of the foundation and the way that those have influenced states and influenced economies and industries. The technology of the internet has had a big role to play in all this as well, as far as having new abilities with money and to move money around, to shuffle money, to create money, to fund things, all of this stuff, the internet has had a huge impact on. I've talked about that as well. I'm not going to get into detail on that either. But another aspect is just fiat money in general. Again, I have, again, fully explained this in other episodes, but just the idea that we now have the ability to create money to transfer that money very easily and quickly. We have these foundations set up to help promote a lot of these changes in other parts of the world and generate ridiculous amounts of wealth and have a lot of say and influence and power in the state and in corporations as well. Think of how all of these foundations, Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation came out of Standard Oil, Carnegie Steel, uh, Microsoft. These are corporations. And in the modern world, you have the corporate world and the state, whereas in this time period we're talking about of the Reformation, you had the nobility and the kings, that aspect, and you had the church, were the two institutional players. And again, there are parallels here that play out in obvious ways. One of the categories parallels that I can draw out very easily would be that the nobility that was around in this historical time period would be very similar to legacy corporations, these large corporations that were benefiting from the state. The nobility was largely benefiting from the church. Think of the Thirty Years' War and how all of that warfare and taking over territory and overthrowing other kingdoms and taking those over and causing all this war and spreading the power of certain noble families. All of them were fighting against each other, so power spread from some and went away from others. And all of this was done through the idea of religion, through the church, through theology. And when you look at these examples of the legacy corporations and how they promoted their economic progress of power and taking over industries and markets, they did so largely through the state. Think of the Banana Republic and the idea of the standard oil business model abroad, this idea that you use warfare, you use politics, you use the state in order for you, the legacy corporation, to gain a bunch of wealth and power and territory, or market territory in this case, just like the nobility used the church and religion to gain a lot of power and territory, physical territory for them through warfare as well. When you look at something like the merchant class that were this new class that came up, an entrepreneurial class, using new techniques, new technologies, new methods, and having a new way of doing things through new technologies, 
this is very similar to the big tech players of today's world, where you have Google and Facebook and Amazon, all of these players that are using these new methods and techniques and technologies of the internet, of e-commerce, of new delivery options and business models to build up large amounts of wealth and influence, then getting integrated into the state so that they can, number one, influence the state, number two, profit off of the state, just like we saw with the Medici, how they started to get involved with the state. Some of them actually became rulers, in a sense, of different areas. And so you saw that both with the Medici getting into statecraft as a whole for Florence, for example. And then also, when you look at the church, you had Medicis who were popes. So they went all the way to the top running the church as a whole, much less being other lesser powerful figures in the church. Many became bishops and other powerful figures as well in that way. And so if you look at big tech and how many executives from this handful of big tech companies have sat on regulatory bodies within the state and who have powerful positions in other corporations. And again, corporations are the equivalent of the nobility and the ruling class historically. And so you see that executives from these big tech companies are then sitting on the board of directors of these hundreds of other companies all around the world in all these other industries having a lot of influence there and also being venture capitalists themselves, starting new startups and new ventures and in other industries and using this wealth and power and influence to control more and more of the corporate world, just like the Medici became more and more ingrained in the political world of their time. Then where do a lot of these big tech companies get their start from? Their startup money as well as their cash cow contracts. Well, those are all governmental or largely governmental. A lot of the startup money comes from governmental grants or something like InQtel, which is basically the CIA's venture capital arm. And a lot of this is government money and the cash cows are government contracts. Amazon gets a lot of their money, I've used this example a lot, from their web services contracts with the US government, with the NSA, with a lot of these other departments. And Google does the same thing Facebook has government contracts as well. And a lot of these big tech companies are heavily tied in with the state. And this is very similar to how the Medici were heavily tied into the church. And they used that power. They became high up in the church at that period in time, just like a lot of these big tech players become fairly high up in the political world as well. If we do truly shift into this idea of being in a technocratic age, where do you think those technocrats are going to come from? It is going to be from this world, the corporate world, especially the world of technology. These big tech entrepreneurs, these are the ones who are going to be in that class and filling that role. These are going to be the experts of this technocratic governance system of using data analytics and technology and surveillance and all of these things to manage an economy and to manage resources, to manage people. The big tech companies are the ones who already have this stuff down. They already have the technology. They already have the algorithms. They already have a lot of this stuff going on. And they already have the government contracts. They're in it. They're ready. They are there. These are the ones who will likely fill a lot of these roles. Just like, again, the Medici ended up being popes. They ended up running the entire church. Speaking of the hierarchy of institutions, there is a parallel here as well in how 
society was in general organized around political means. So in your general region, you had a hierarchy that was very clear, fairly authoritarian, usually a monarchy, and that was who ruled that territory. And this was the way the hierarchy was structured. That political hierarchy was supported by the church. The church was basically the power behind the throne, and they had a lot of power and influence over many different monarchs, many different territories, all of them within all of Christendom, if you're looking at the time period just before the Reformation. And so if you look at today's world, today's world, the hierarchy is becoming more and more built around markets, around economic factors. And this would be a more business-oriented, a corporate-oriented hierarchy that is supported by the state. The state, whether you look at your individual country that you live in, or whether you look at these more world organizations that have a lot of regulatory power as well, or even just territorial organizations like the EU, for example, All of these could be classified as the state. They are, in a sense, the power behind the throne. If you're talking about the throne of markets, the economic throne that we live under today, today we are in the age or at the end of the age of economics, the economic age. That is what we are in now, getting into the technocratic age. That's where we're going. And so before this shift happens, and as this shift is happening, we live in a much more economic, a market-based society with the hierarchy being more on the corporate and market-based level with the state, again, no matter how you want to look at that and what the state is, the governance body officially is the one who is backing up this power and dictating a lot of things, having a lot of control over lots of different companies within their territory, just like the church had control over lots of different monarchs and uh, noble rulers throughout the church's territory. And the church was ruling through doctrine. That is how they would apply their power and their influence. If they said that this is what the Bible says to do, this is how you should and shouldn't live, you can and can't do this action, they can even tell that to a king. And if a king rejects what the church says, what the Pope says, at least prior to the Reformation, that did not usually go very well at all for that king. That king usually did not last much longer after making that decision and making that choice to buck the power of the church. And the same is true when we look at the corporate world. The state can tell corporations what they can and can't do, what is and isn't right, what is and isn't legal, how they can and can't operate their business. And typically, if a corporation goes against what one of these state bodies says to do, it usually doesn't go very well for that corporation, at least prior to the technocratic shift. And so that usually is how things play out now. As we look at a shift into a more technocratic governance system, That probably is the shift right there. So looking at the Reformation, that is the shift from a world that is largely influenced, let's say, by the church, by this huge institution that has a lot of influence over this whole area of political governance all around this large territory— the shift of the Reformation is that the church no longer has this monopoly of religion on all of these territories. They no longer have the same influence they did. Church didn't disappear, not by any means. But 
they did have a break in that influence and in that role. And that's what the Reformation was. And that was when kings, monarchs, the nobility chose to go against what the church says, split off from the church, and actually were successful in that. And they did it in mass. It wasn't just one king doing it. It took many monarchs, many noble individuals, many territories, all breaking away at roughly the same time, breaking away from the same institution, the church. And it took a lot of warfare, a lot of conflict to solidify this and to actually make this occur. I would estimate that the same is true shifting into a technocratic society where you would have to have corporations in mass, many corporations with a lot of power, breaking away from the state control that they are under, the political control they are under, and deciding some of their own political decisions, making some of their own regulations, grouping together, and having to go through a lot of conflict, a lot of warfare, probably economic warfare, not necessarily physical warfare. But again, that's the parallel here. And that's likely what will have to happen in order for the power of the state, this political power, this influence that they have over their entire country or an entire block of countries or the entire world, if you look at NATO or the World Health Organization or the IMF or the World Bank or any of these global organizations and regulatory bodies, in order for that power to break, you would have to have corporations breaking away And there would have to be many of them doing this and doing this at roughly the same time in roughly the same way, going through a lot of conflict to solidify that, to shift into a more technocratic age where the state doesn't just wither away and disappear. It's not like politics is totally gone. There still is a state. They still have a political role to play in their territories. They still exist. They still exist in largely the same way in some areas, just like the Catholic Church still existed in largely the same way in large areas. It wasn't just in tiny areas. They even have the Counter-Reformation, where they had a lot of success coming back and getting some of that influence back in certain areas, and especially as the Age of Exploration took place and the Catholic Church was very on it in spreading Catholicism all around these new places of the globe. And so, again, it's not that the church disappeared. It's not like the state would disappear. It would still be there, largely fulfilling the same role, just in different ways, playing a different role in different regions. It would break apart as far as the dominance that they have, the monopoly that they have on influencing and governing society. They would probably still govern all things political, That is the way the church was. The church still governed all things political. Now, at the same time, there was a marriage with the Church of England between church and state, and there probably would be some marriages of the like in modern times if we shifted into a technocratic society where you might have some places that are run by a government that is made up of experts and technocrats and corporate elites That could happen in certain countries, in certain territories. Sure, it probably is going to look like different things in different areas, just like what happened in the Reformation. It's not like the church lost its influence, all of a sudden they're gone, and there's these new systems that sprung up everywhere, and now everyone is just a nation state with no religion, and religion you know, just went out the door and is completely broken up and has no influence. That's not what happened, and that's probably not what would happen or will happen if we shift into a technocratic society and technocratic governance. Again, these parallels play out very well. There are very direct connections here. And so we can see that more than likely, if we truly are entering a digital reformation with this stuff going on, 
this will look differently depending on where you are, depending on which corporations break away in which ways under what state control they are in and which global organizations have a say in their markets and the influence that they have. How will this technate be formed? Will it actually be the executives of all the big tech companies and big agro and big pharma coming together and forming this technocratic governance council that runs you know, all the Western world? I don't know. That's possible, sure. But it's probably going to look a lot different than that. And I cannot predict the future Neither can you, and no one can, but we can see that the large shift, at least, is likely to take place where political matters will become more localized. They will become more broken up, as the church did. And just like how the nobility rose up and solidified their role as being nation states governed by them and their bureaucracies having a much larger role and influence over their regions and territories. The same will probably be true of the corporate world who will probably rise up and solidify their interest and their influence over the markets that they participate in and taking a lot of that from the power that is lost by the state as the state starts to break up as far as its power and influence is concerned and not disappear and not totally go away and not break up into tiny little cantons all around the world. But like the church, there will probably be some breakups of some states in some ways that will probably become denominationalized, if that's a word, like the church did with all these different denominations that broke apart, did different things. It wasn't just the Catholics and the Lutherans. You had all of these different denominations all around the world doing things in different ways, and religion still played a huge role in society. There will probably be states and political entities that are broken up and doing things in all different ways all around the world, but with politics and with governments and states still having a large influence on society again. But it will be these technocratic groups, whatever those look like, that will play the role of the nation state now and take the role that the nation state will be giving up. It won't be the role of politics, just like the nation state that took over for the church didn't take up the role of religion, at least in most cases, you know, Church of England being one exception. And so they did take the role of influence of society and steering society, guiding society, ruling over society. A lot of that was overseen by the church through religion, just like a lot of that is overseen by nation states through politics. Again, this still will play out, but you will see that some of these aspects of rule and influence and governance will be taken over from a more technocratic perspective, which, as we've talked about before, this looks more like resource management and sustainability and corporate regulations and all of these types of things. It's not necessarily the politics of can or can't you have an abortion or can or can't you get divorced or get married as a gay couple. These aren't the things that the technate deals with that that is far out of their purview, just like most nation states, especially getting into more modern times in the Enlightenment period, they were not dealing with religious issues. They weren't dealing with, is this a sin or is it not? That was the role of the church that still existed and existed in different ways in different places, did break up, but that was still their role. Their role was religion, just like the state's role will still be politics. But there are a lot more aspects 
to social engineering, to governance, to resource management, a lot more aspects that exist outside of the political realm. Now, a lot of these are still influenced by politics as a whole, just like the nation states that came up out of the Reformation were largely influenced by religion as a whole that still had a huge influence on society as a whole. And at the risk of beating a dead horse here, I am going to stop with that little rant and move on to one final thing, a more positive aspect, a more solutions-oriented example here. And that would be looking at an early version of agorism, of self-sufficiency, of taking charge of your own life, of your own communities, and taking action. Now, this would be the example of early monastic orders and some of the original Protestants and the Anabaptists. There are many different groups that you could make these examples of, but I can pull out a common theme out of all of them. The idea was that oftentimes they did not agree with some of the ways that the church was doing things, or they thought that the way the church was doing things was okay for the church and for a lot of other people in society, but they did not want to live that way personally, and they had different convictions. They had different ideologies, different ideas of how to live and how to act and how to relate to society. And so they kind of broke apart to some extent from the church, just like the monastic orders did things very differently than the church writ large did. They formed their own communities, oftentimes becoming trading hubs and looking at the fall of the Roman Empire. A lot of places like this became very influential in their local regions as the state started to fall apart. The empire started to fall apart. They were these self-sufficient communities that were very focused on taking care of themselves, on not being reliant on the outside world, on the state, or even on the church. If you look at the Anabaptists or the Protestants, let's say the Protestants, they felt like the Catholic Church was doing things wrong. They thought that, according to the Bible, they should do things differently, live differently. If you look at a lot of the early Protestants that started colonies in America, for example, they had their own governance system. They had their own ideologies. They had their own interpretations of scripture and carried them out as a whole in that way. If you look at Calvin and how he ran Geneva, really interesting example of running an entire city from a governance model that is totally different than a monarchy and totally different than what the church said. He broke away and did it differently. He had his own idea and he enacted that and put that into action and made it work. If you look at the Anabaptists that even broke away from what the Protestants wanted to do, a lot of them having their own self-sufficient communities that were not reliant on the state and not reliant on the church and had disagreements with the church and some religious and theological issues. You have certain groups like the Mennonites, I believe it is, that believed that they shouldn't use electricity as that became a thing because if you did, then you would become reliant on the state for that source of electricity. It's not something you can produce on your own. And so they forwent that technology and that convenience and chose to do things in a way that was more sustainable, more self-sufficient, where they can be their own community, taking care of themselves, doing their own things, producing some extra and trading with the local community, selling things, bartering, and performing services for other people outside of their own close-knit community, much like the monastic orders that were around long before them. Bringing this full circle, we get into not differences in doctrine and theology and religious beliefs, but differences in 
politics and political theory and philosophy and those ideologies and beliefs, that would be the modern parallel. And obviously what I'm talking about here is agorism. It's this idea of promoting these same themes in our own lives, in our own communities. The idea of not being reliant on the state, which is the obvious parallel to the church and not being reliant on mega corporations, which is the parallel to the state of their time historically of the nobility and the monarchs, these types of people, but rather to be much more self-sufficient. And it doesn't mean that we forego all ideas of political philosophy and governance and organization. No, we still have beliefs in these areas. They are just different than what the dominant institution believes they are. We break apart from those dominant institutional players and form our own communities, our own ideologies, and actually put that into action and actually make that work. That is what agorism is. It is being less reliant on these institutions, being more self-sufficient, taking charge of your own life, doing it according to your own ideologies that are different from what the state says and what the church says or what the corporate world says or what the consumerist mindset says. We believe things that are different than this. We therefore act in a way that is different from this. And we actually live our lives in a way that is different from this. And in doing so, we can become more self-sufficient. We can become less reliant on the system. And we can do this through ideas and philosophies such as agorism and have hopefully a lot of these same results that these different groups did. The Protestant groups had very good results. Uh, again, Geneva is an example of very positive results. The monastic orders extremely positive results. Even the Anabaptist, a lot of those communities are still around today practicing in the same way that they did a few hundred years ago. Very good results. We can have good results regardless of what society does, what the political world does, what the state does, what the big tech companies or mega corporations do, whether or not we have a giant worldwide technate or just shift into a more technocratic system at the top. We ourselves can do this in community or as individuals even, and we can hopefully have some similar successes where regardless of what's going on in the world around us, we can have this effect ourselves on our own lives, with our own families, within our own communities, in our own local areas and even in our own virtual connected communities, this is now possible. And we have the ways, we have the means, we have the ideologies, we have the philosophies, we have access to all of this, we have this ability. The question is, will we take it? With that, I must say thank you very much for the patron supporters, especially for those who have left ratings and reviews, for you yourself, just for listening. Thank you very much. Having an audience is why I do this podcast. If I had no audience and no one was interested, I would not do this. I would find some other outlet to pour my research and my rhetoric into other than a podcast that no one listened to. But because you are listening and there are people interested in these things and these are important matters that we do need to address and not only address, not only think about, we need to act on them. And because of this, I am doing this podcast and I'm doing it because of your support and because you are interested and because you are listening. So thank you very much. I really mean that. It does mean a lot to me. 
if you did say that you wanted a t-shirt when I offered t-shirts for anybody that wanted one, yours is on the way. I think they just got mailed out today. And so you should be receiving that in the next who knows when. The post office may be having some issues in your local area if you are in the States. And so eventually it will get to you. It is in the mail officially. So you will be getting that. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for requesting it and for wearing it. That definitely gets the word out there. And thank you for getting the word out there in general. Those of you that have shared this podcast or at least shared these ideas, especially agorism. This is one of the most important concepts in my mind for right now. This is what we need to be talking about and we need to be spreading and we need to be building. And so maybe I'll do an episode on that at some point. I'm trying to actually act on this and live this out in my own life individually, my family, but also build community and build some connections and build some structures and systems locally for myself as well as virtually. And so maybe I'll talk about those efforts at some point as well. But this is something we need to do. It's not just about thinking. It's also about acting, especially in a time where we have major shifts that are going on and that will continue to be occurring. We need to be on the lookout for these things. We need to know what to do. We need to set these things up and have plans and take action ahead of time so that if we do suffer some worst case scenarios or even anywhere close to the worst case scenario, even just anything on that negative end, we are protected. We have plans and we are in roughly good shape. With that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.